Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses warped your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Welcome back, prom party. Stepbrother, what are you doing? I knew in my soul that there was no other way to start the show than you doing that. Okay. Uh, Oh, this movie. Uh, Okay. To be fair, though, it's more of like stepsister, what are you doing in the context of this film, I think. Yeah, this is very true. One so more so at the front, one so more so at the back. (laughs) I also do want to take the time to give a sweet, sweet shout out to our buds, August and Ronan back in Cleveland, because Ronan definitely made me an embroidered patch that says, stepbrother, what are you doing? And it's one of my favorite things that I own. (laughs) So if I don't know what other teen movie we could possibly be talking about with that sort of intro. Uh, But we are going back to 1999, the crown jewel year of teen cinema. And we are getting very, very naughty this week. Uh, yeah. (laughs) How salacious it is. But the best part about it is that we're not getting naughty with just ourselves. We've invited a friend. And that's the best kind of naughtiness to have, is to have a friend with you. We have the incredible poet-turned-podcaster, like Donner Party, brilliant mind, Chelsea Weversmith of American Hysteria. Hi, Chelsea. (laughs) I just so hope that the Donner Party is forever associated with me. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this very complex film. (laughs) So of all of the teen movies that exist, why Cruel Intentions, Chelsea? (laughs) Well, you know, partially, I can't say like, oh, my heart calls out for cruel intentions, right? It's not like a film I'm extremely emotionally connected to, but it definitely like played an interesting role in my own kind of queer growing up, which I think is interesting for this movie. And also you hadn't done it. And of course, I'm a big listener of your show and I feel like it's definitely canon and I feel like it needs to be kind of woven into the the conversation more that you all are having. Having and uh, I, I love this movie. I hate this movie. I, uh, I am just so excited to break it down with you both and uh, tell you a few stories from my own weird uh, relationship to it for sure. Oh, I'm so excited for that. I think now we are just down to Varsity Blues of the movies parodied and not another teen movie that Harmony has not seen. Of the big (laughs) ones, yeah, probably. (laughs) So. Harmony, what was your knowledge of Cruel Intentions until <laughs> made you watch this? Oh, uh, 
I mean, I didn't know Reese Witherspoon was in it until like a week ago. Yeah, that's true. So uh, I vaguely knew that it existed because of Not Another Team movie and the curse that it has put on all of us as a culture. Uh, I remember watching a lot of VH1 back in the day. Mm -hmm. So like I Love the 90s or like various other countdown or listicle based shows would be like, oh, that kiss where she's all big and slobbery and it's not even that slobbery. Right. So like I knew of things with this movie in a very, very, very vague sense. Okay, so you got kind of the the aspects of this movie that permeated culture outside of the teen movie bubble. Yeah, I got the things that were um, lampooned yeah. from this movie okay. more than the movie. Fantastic. Chelsea, how about you? What is your introduction to Cruel Intentions? Oh, man. I mean, you know, it, it's so long ago, and I definitely saw it in... 99 or 2000. I don't think I would have seen it in theaters, but, um, and I don't have a memory of it, and I'm sure that I would remember that. Um, so I don't remember the, uh, my original time watching it, but by the time I was 13, I'd probably seen it 10 times, right? And so I think what is most interesting to me about my relationship to this movie is when I was in high school, I had kind of like a weird, have you guys read The Secret History by Donna Tart? Ever? <laughs> Forget mm-hmm. what that book is. Okay. Well, you should read it. I feel like some of your listeners will definitely know. But we, I had sort of like a, a ragtag group of friends that would do things like, uh, you know, we'd wear our little outfits and have little picnics uh, during lunch, you know, far away from the school. And we had like our whole... Um, we had like a, a group, a weird group, right? We just had this strange little outlier group of like queers living our strange life in the suburbs of Seattle. And so we had this dream, like an absolute pipe dream, but we kind of used the framework of Cruel Intentions to be like, we want to make this into a play. We want to make it into a play. <laughs> Not really a play for anyone, right? We just wanted to adapt this movie with with a lot of queer undertones, definitely offensive stuff in it, but also a really interesting relationship to queerness and uh what was really sad is that they everyone said I had to be Cecile and um (laughs) and I think that says something about (laughs) about um who I was in high school uh in a little bit uh a little bit a little bit okay I was like this is not fair (laughs) this is not representative but my major 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 like crush high school love was to be Catherine which meant we got to kiss Mm. (laughs) and I thought that would have been nice we never put on this play but uh it was definitely this weird framework that we kind of created uh to I don't know there's I want to get more into this like decadent sort of weird novel aspect to it um like Oscar Wilde vibe that it has uh a little bit later but yeah that's Mm -hmm. sort of my relationship to and of course like that kiss it's and I know y'all know what I'm talking about we did not have a lot (laughs) yes people we did not have very much so did I watch that scene a lot and rewind it and watch it a lot I did I did do that (laughs) oh god the 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 not having any kind of representation has is what drew me to movies like sorority boys of all things but the thing I try to explain to like Gen Zers about like oh yeah when we didn't have 
representation. That meant someone like me watched Boat Trip starring Cuba Gooding Jr. and hated the whole experience, but goddammit, there was something there at least. <laughs> Just a flicker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Boat Trip. Oh, God. <laughs> that movie is so bad and so forgotten of, it's not even on streaming services. Well, nobody needs to see that. I feel like Cuba Gooding Jr. is probably paying streaming services to be like, don't do that. Don't I don't need the 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 puritans to find this and decide that I need to be canceled. God, do I need to go to Shmamazon right now and see if there's like releases of Boat Trip because it's now an artifact? <laughs> it's a okay, hold on, mind hold on. Steals. Is Boat Trip like in the lineage of Road Trip and Euro Trip or is this no. something different? Okay, Boat Trip. I don't know what this is. God, okay. So it's Cuba Gooding Jr. and Horatio Sands, and they're just two guys, and they're just they want to go on a boat trip and accidentally book themselves on a gay cruise. And then the whole movie is just gay panic and gay jokes for the rest of the movie. And there's a shot in the trailer that, like, they filmed it and knew this is our trailer shot where Cuba Gooding Jr. is dressed like a Vegas showgirl going, how could you think I'm gay? Uh." (laughs) Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's one of those movies where you look at it and you're like, I understand why this was made for this time period, but also Oh my god. This movie came out in 2003. Yes. This is like a 1996 style film at the latest. Yeah, it's rough. So my introduction to Cruel Intentions was at a sleepover when I was like, I don't know, 10 or so. We I definitely was not one of the kids that snuck into the theater to see this because this is rated R, my friends. This is danger territory. But when it hit Blockbuster, all of our parents were like, yeah, I guess. It's fine. Oh, it's got Buffy. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, Buffy's in this. Who cares? Hey, it's Buffy. <laughs> so we uh, we watched it at a sleepover. Obviously, a lot of the intense stuff was right over my head. I knew that it was, like, sexy, and obviously the kiss definitely did something for me. And then by the time I revisited it, I was a teenager, and as I have discussed many, many times in the show... Uh, I was well versed in the ways of the sex as a teenager. So by the time I was watching it, like all of the titillating aspects of it didn't do anything for me because I was like, oh my God, shut up. Just blow him. Like, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Calm down. It's just sex. Like that was very much where I was at. Um, But that experience of watching that movie was because uh, I did pageants and one of my friends who was a, a pageant girl was competing in her first pageant that required a bathing suit. And she was really self-conscious about being on stage in her bathing suit, as would most people. So we decided to like make her feel good and like feel comfortable. We were going to have a lingerie party. And all of us were just going to hang out together in lingerie, like wearing like no clothes to just sort of like normalize and like be Yeah, it was like a really fun experience. And then we decided, well, since we're already in lingerie, we've got to do a double feature of cruel intentions and wild things. Gotta watch sexy movies. We gotta watch sexy movies. (laughs) So that's what we watched, and that was like such a formative and wonderful experience and it was also very much solidifying like oh i'm just very gay what am i doing (laughs) um what a double feature too it just it's you know the sexy romp (laughs) it's this it's the sexy erotic teen movies that exist and uh i mean there's plenty more we one day we will do the crush and it will be glorious um but we uh we watched it and i that's like my my most solid memory of cruel intentions is being half naked with all of my friends watching teen smut and having a great time (laughs) cruel intentions is for the gays i mean it really it really is it It really 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 is (laughs) so before we dive any deeper it's everyone's favorite time (laughs) 
Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. This month, we want to spotlight something that we think you will find very, very interesting. The Cosmic Game. The Cosmic Game is an original horror-fantasy audio drama from the immersive production company Drunken Devil located in Los Angeles. A modern twist on classic radio dramas, the podcast tells the story of God and the devil as they try to outwit one another in an effort to gain influence over all Earth-dwelling mortals. Listeners will encounter vampires in New Orleans, ancient Roman tyrants, cults, and demons in this supernatural melodrama. The Cosmic Game incorporates at-home cocktail recipes curated to match each episode for an unparalleled listening experience. The first three episodes are available now wherever you get your podcasts, with new episodes releasing weekly. For more information, check out thedrunkendevil.com. T-H-E, drunkendevil.com. So since we're dealing with 1999, it is a year that we have come back to time and time again so analyzing the teen aspect of it is kind of pointless we've done it we so still harmony... have so many more movies in this year we have <laughs> no, to do so many <laughs> uh but what kind of context do you have for us of what was going on in this time that may have led to cruel intentions uh, oh geez um well i don't need to go into teen movies in 99 anymore we've done at least like eight other films from that year so <laughs> yeah. far listen to any of the context from those other ones there you go but the 90s is such a magical time because we're getting the resurgence, like the popular, big, mainstream, critical acclaim resurgence of the erotic thriller. Yeah, we are. Oh. And that means that you're getting erotic thrillers for teens. Yeah. Yeah, we <laughs> I, are. <laughs> I wouldn't say that this is a thriller. This is definitely an erotic drama. But it's, 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 it's a satellite of the erotic thriller. So obviously we have like the aforementioned The Crush. We have the aforementioned Wild Things, but there's also like The Babysitter, Poison Ivy 1 and 2. Cachet supremacy, I am here for it. <laughs> to some extent, like there's American Beauty, even though like the actual erotic part isn't so much the teens, it's Mr. Stranger Danger himself, Kevin Spacey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's so fascinating when you look at the trajectory of the 90s because it's not until the mid-90s that you get the real teen boom that we know of as like a 90s teen film. And I think that this parallels the last time that we had really salacious teen cinema as like a, as a popular mainstay, which was the late 70s and early 80s. And that coincided at the same time where you also had like teen sex comedies. Um, mm-hmm. Animal House started it. Porky's and Revenge of the Nerds and all those kind of took it to the moon. Mm-hmm. The erotic thriller for teen films also kind of gets killed at the same time that you have the sex comedies return for like American Pie and all of like the gross out teen boy and like college age films. Mm-hmm. And now 
I think we're back into like the the next 15 year swing where we're getting erotic teen stuff again, where it's salacious and we're talking about teen sexuality for the first time in a long time. Mm -hmm. But there aren't sex comedies because we're just done with them. That's a really good point. Like That's history, really interesting. History yeah. just keeps repeating in this really fascinating way, but now we're just removing all of the unnecessary stuff. And the teen sex comedies that we do get now are a lot smarter than the ones before. Like, mm-hmm. no offense, I love 80s teen sex comedies. They're usually dumb as hell. But movies now, like, you have something like The Package, which is a movie where a guy accidentally chops his penis off. There's only one trans joke in that entire movie, and it's by somebody who's kind of a bastard. Mm -hmm. So, like, that humor isn't normalized. Or you look at something like Blockers, which is mostly about parents having insecurities about their children being sexually active and... God bless you, John Cena. You're incredible God, in that movie. God, I, I want to do that, that movie. movie. Oh, Let's do that, that for the show sometime. It'll be so much fun. Yes. <laughs> the movie's so good. But no, you're you're absolutely right, because we are sort of getting that swing of erotic teen content again, obviously Euphoria being the most well-known example well, of you this. You also have like Pen15. You even have something like Big Mouth, mm-hmm. where yeah. it's like, oh yeah, we're talking about teen sexuality in a way that's making a lot of people uncomfortable, because it's like, oh, well, it's getting into this weird like pseudo-grooming, sort of like you're sexualizing teens category, and it's like, well, yes and no, it's complicated. Right. It's it's not so much sexualizing as it is normalizing the fact that teens do have sex. Yes. I mean, yeah. the the new Pixar movie Turning Red that just came out. I'm not going to spoil anything for you. It does not shy away from the fact that 13-year-old girls have urges, and it's wild as hell that that exists in that movie. Like, I truly cannot process that that got through the the world of, we just need to make everything as squeaky clean as possible side of, of Disney. I cannot believe it got through. Wow. Um, but it's there, and it's incredible, and we will be talking about that movie on a later date. Um but yeah, that's a that's a great way of shaping the world of cruel intentions and <laughs> how this movie got made because <laughs> it's it's kind of unbelievable how it it's got one, made. It's really one of a kind in a lot of ways, I think. Uh huh. So yeah. Chelsea, for for the listeners out there who have not seen Cruel Intentions, if you had to summarize this movie. What is okay. Cruel Intentions about? <laughs> it's, it's it is a labyrinth. Um, it is from a French novel, so uh, from the seventeen hundreds, which maybe gives you a little bit of uh, insight into the way that it like twists and turns, and all the characters come in and out of each other's lives in like different ways, and it's different depending on each scene. So here we go. I made some notes. I'm gonna do my best. <laughs> Starts out with um, Sebastian, who is played by Ryan. Felipe or Philippi? I think it's Philippi. What's the consensus? I think it's it's Philippi, but I've been corrected. We're going with Philippi. Ryan Philippi. Uh, He is playing Sebastian, who is a super rich elite uh, prep school boy who uh, has... I just want to intro... This isn't important, but Tara reads in the beginning, and I just want to say... She's fantastic. Her performance for like five minutes is wonderful. Um, But we don't need to go into that. So Catherine is Sebastian's uh, stepsister, played by Sarah Michelle Gellar. And she is a real uh, snaky lady. Uh, She has like a a very cool... 
what do you, uh, crucifix necklace, not a crucifix, oh my God. Uh, she has a, what am I trying to say? A like rosary. a rosary. She has a rosary <laughs> necklace and uh, it opens up and inside is cocaine and it's like a little Coke scoop and she can do Coke whenever she wants. And uh, sh- they're just very, very rich, very old seeming for being high schoolers, like extremely well read and um, clearly in a very strange, sordid um step-sibling sexual relationship, like, will they, won't they type of thing that is present throughout the movie. Um, So Annette is played by dear Reese Witherspoon. She's adorable in this movie. And um, Sebastian is one who is interested in conquests, sexual conquests, and keeps a journal. And his latest um, challenge is Annette, and she is the new headmaster's daughter. And in Seventeen magazine, she's written a uh, virginity manifesto called something like "Why is <laughs> like Why I Wait." So <laughs> they make a bet, Catherine and Sebastian, that Sebastian, if he can in fact sleep with Annette, which his stepsister believes he cannot, then she will finally have sex with Sebastian. So she will fuck her stepbrother that she's obviously been like kind of like making him well, she's been he's like in love with her, I think, right? Is that the thing? It sounds like he's been in love with her. He says that in his journal. But anyway, yeah. If he, but yeah. I think an important aspect of this bet is not that he wants to have sex with her, because I think he wants to hate fuck her a bit, but yes. more importantly, that he can fuck her in the ass. Yeah, yes. he wants to put it anywhere. That's yeah. uh, that's the bet. Is That's what convinces him. It's not, it's, you can put it anywhere. So... <laughs> And then if and then if he cannot succeed, then she gets his hot little car, uh, which is a Jaguar Roadster. And uh, so that's the bet. Um, Catherine, again, Sarah Michelle Gellar, she is in this uh, space where she's looking for some revenge because her ex-boyfriend or ex-lover um, has decided to throw, toss her aside for a character named Cecile, played by Selma Blair, who's also, what a, what a cast. Can we just say? <laughs> it's unbelievable. What a cast. What a cast. Um, so uh, she's angry. She wants to get back at court by getting to Cecile, corrupting her, making her slutty, whatever. So uh, they kind of, okay. Am I doing good here? How are we doing? You're doing great. All right. Is this too much detail? Are we okay? No, I think this is good because, like you said at the beginning, this is based on the French novel that would then become Dangerous Liaisons. French. And then would become, (laughs) you know, Cruel Intentions. There's a lot of moving parts here. There are so many. And it's coming from the time period where we were like, what if Shakespeare... But teens? Yeah, and I'm, I always want to know what if Shakespeare but teens. So <laughs> yeah, this was so my the, era. We got a lot of that in the late 90s. <laughs> yeah, and really instead did. of using that, Roger Cumble was like, what if sexy French 1700s but teens? Yeah. And so, yes, a lot of moving parts. So you're doing great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay. So we have... Uh, The idea of Catherine to get close to Cecile through kind of being her introduction. She's new to Manchester. And uh, Catherine is just kind of coming off as what she calls, which I love. There's one quote that says, 
I'm the Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side, and sometimes I want to kill myself. <laughs> and so anyway, that's uh, she is sort of like uh, her front-facing persona to the adults in the world is very um, good and very proper, religious, etc. How how she gets away with that, I don't really know. But um, so Cecile comes under Catherine's wing and influence. And Cecile is a goofball. She is like very silly and very young compared to them. Not actually young, but acts very, very young. Wears like a koala shirt to their like fine suits and like see-through black dresses. And uh, (laughs) it's like a very clear delineation. Um, However, you know, Catherine's ex has taken an interest in Cecile. And... Cecile, at the same time, seems to be falling in love with her music teacher, whose name is Ronald, and he is played by the fantastic Sean Patrick Thomas. And he's also, like, I think the only person of color. uh, He's black. He's the only person of color in this movie, except for um, Maylee, who works in the house and is, like, this Mm -hmm. weird scapegoat, (laughs) like, a couple different times (laughs) when she, like, knocks something over and she's like, Maylee, be careful. It's just weird. Um, and then, so, Cecile is falling for Ronald, which, of course, in, in this world, um, is seen as, uh, possibly reputation ruining, quote unquote, right? And so, he's teaching her cello. It's, it's super hot. We love it. And, um, Catherine's encouraging this relationship because she sees the benefit in ruining her reputation, right? So she starts encouraging her to write letters to Ronald. Ronald and her start to develop a relationship. At the same time, (laughs) Sebastian, and uh, thank you for following me, Sebastian and Annette are having this relationship where he's trying to convince her that he's not this bad guy that everybody knows that he is. And so he's He's posturing for a while, and then he obviously starts to have some feelings for her that continue on, and eventually, well, we'll get there. So Cecile's mom, (laughs) Cecile's mom, finds out about Ronald. (laughs) Ronald and Cecile have to, are no longer allowed to see each other. There's a whole scene where Ronald walks out yelling, the black man is gone. And it's it's a great scene because Cecile, or yeah, Cecile's mom is obviously super racist and, and, and confronts him and and he's like, I, he's like, amazing. I went to Juilliard. <laughs> she goes, I, I got you off the street. He's like, I went to Juilliard. So then Sebastian, Annette, falling in love. She tries to have sex with him finally, like give him her virginity. And uh, he can't do it, right? Because he's in love. And he's like, oh, I can't do this. I'm, I've changed. And she is really, really, really rejected by that. So she's like, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And then he finds out where she goes and chases her, colorblind by the Counting Crows starts playing. (laughs) (laughs) The soundtrack is fantastic. You know, and it's just like, it's so heavy and dramatic. And she's standing, or he's standing at the top of the escalator as she's coming up. In that bright shirt. Oh, yeah, in that bright blue shirt. (laughs) That color palette that is out of place in almost the entire rest of the movie. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't. It's got, you know, there are shades of... um, uh, Pleasantville in this movie for sure. Um, so then they have sex in a very romantic, very 90s, like tender, tender, but like 
weirdly sweaty. Did you guys know it's like very sweaty? It's extremely sweaty. sweaty. Somebody had a (laughs) bottle of water on the ready that they were just spritzing them with in between takes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure why, who thought that was what it looks like. But um, anyway, so he comes to Catherine and she's like, did you do it? And he's like, yes. And then she basically is like, you're a fool you know, you can't change your, you know, your reputation's going to be ruined, blah, blah, blah. So he, she basically manipulates him into thinking, okay, I have to break up with this girl. And so he does. He's super mean in that, like, really classic way where it's, like, just basically, like, just go. Just get out of here. I don't love you anymore. <laughs> and um, then Catherine's like, you fucking fool. You had love and you threw it away. Like, you let me convince you of that. Then she, like says she won't have sex with him and then ronald sebastian finds that ronald as we sean patrick thomas is now sleeping with Catherine, and then (laughs) Catherine then tells ronald that sebastian has hit her and has also like had sex with cecile and then ronald goes finds sebastian who's just dropped off his conquest journal to Uh, Annette's house to sort of be like this is who I am like you can have this thing that was the most important thing to me I'm throwing away like the bad person that I was he's walking down the streets of New York Sean Patrick Thomas walks up they get in a fist fight Uh, Annette just happens to be walking by runs up and is like no boys stop and then she gets thrown off of them right because she's trying to pull them apart she falls into the road a taxi cab speeding toward her Sebastian dives in pushes her out of the way gets hit by the car and dies Um, great (laughs) he's dead (laughs) Um, so that's almost the end except for probably the best scene in the movie which is um the scene where, first of all, Sarah Michelle, Ge- Sarah Michelle Geller is, well, you know, whatever her name is. I'm losing everyone's name now. Catherine is in the bathroom snorting some coke out of her cross and about to do the eulogy for her stepbrother at the big fancy Catholic uh, funeral at their prep school. And uh, then Annette walks in and is like, you know, they act like they don't know each other. And she goes out to do the eulogy. And all of a sudden there's like a you know, a rabble rumble in the crowd and people start walking out and uh, she gets really angry. They walk outside and then it turns out that everybody now has a copy of Sebastian's journal, which details very like exactly who Catherine really is. You know, they walk up, the the the, the administrator walks up and grabs her cocaine cross and knocks it out and Bittersweet Symphony's just playing now like super <laughs> fucking loud. Then Annette somehow has Sebastian's car in the end and drives away across the countryside. And that is my best uh, try at Cruel Intentions. Uh, Thank you. Absolutely incredible. Thank you for this tireless work. That feels like you are finally putting on the play of Cruel Intentions that you always oh, wanted. Thank you finally you. got to. That's so nice. <laughs> so needless to say, when it comes to teen movies, Cruel Intentions has a lot going on in it, especially compared to its contemporaries. It's real dense, specifically because it's like, hey, what if all of our five main characters were all just sleeping with each other? Mm-hmm. Usually this is reserved for more adult fare, but we're dealing with teenagers, and that makes it extra salacious. Cecile is planning on uh, 
going away with Court next week. I'll need you to speed up her sexual awakening. I'm at your service. Thank you. Uh, that feels good. Oh, sis, you're so tense. I know. I hate it when things don't go my way. It makes me so horny. I hate it too. I know, having been the person who watched this movie with you, you were not nearly as passionate about this movie than I was, (laughs) Harmony. No. I've been waiting for this. (laughs) So I would love for you to give me what your takeaway is as somebody who saw this for the first time as a (laughs) 30-something. I'm frightened. So this is not even our first, like, teen sex bet movie. Like, mm-hmm. we've done He's All That. We've done She's All That. We've done Little Darlings. We've done a lot of bet-related movies mm-hmm. kind of like this. Not quite as horny and, like, adult as this, but, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. It's 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 fine. It's We're usually in the money. era. It makes sense. <laughs> They're usually betting for money, sex for money, not yeah. sex for sex. Sex for pseudo-Brady family incest. I have yeah. a note. I have a note on my document here that says, "What is up with bet movies?" In the 90s? <laughs> yeah, so, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, the movie is playing, and I keep having these thoughts of like, "Uh huh, uh huh," <laughs> and then the credits roll, and Reese Witherspoon's driving away, and I turn to BJ and go, "But why? <laughs> I don't know what to make of this film." At all. I have so many questions, and I know the answers to them, but I still have questions. Is the endings like Grease when they drive into the sky to me? Well, yeah, the ending's like weird. It's like, just fine. Like, we're a mad dash to the end, wrap up all these loose ends. Okay, I got that. But just like the whole movie is so many questionable choices because this is also like, the genre of rich people behaving badly, which is a oh, yeah. genre I don't understand. <laughs> And that's like all the rage right now. But like, oh, lifestyles of the rich and famous are going off the rails and I don't get it. (laughs) I feel like Cruel Intentions to me is like the movie version of that scene in Blades of Glory when Will Ferrell is singing My Humps and John Heater's like, what does that even mean? And he goes, nobody knows what it means, but it's provocative. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's Cruel Intentions. It's a feeling. (laughs) It's a feeling. It's a sensation. It's an experience. It's a feeling, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a like a playground of uh, so- sociopathy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> God, it really, yeah. really is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so- one of the things I did ask was like, BJ, is this supposed to be a comedy? <laughs> that is a great question. Actually. Because this movie almost feels better as a comedy because there's parts that are very clearly like meant to be funny, like. When Selma Blair is trying to have sex with Sebastian and he's like, no, quiet time, and shoves her off the bed. <laughs> like, it's the it's the queerness of this movie that makes it extremely camp, but also yes. then it's like colliding with Reese Witherspoon screaming in his face and slapping him. And it's just like, there's lots of just intense <laughs> feelings. <laughs> also, Cecile had just been pushed off the couch by Catherine, like... <laughs> five minutes before. Yes. So she gets pushed off of two couches. I think that's important. 
So something that is very interesting is Roger Cumble, who wrote and directed this movie, this is his debut feature. He would go on to make a movie that I know, at least Harmony and I love, The Sweetest Thing. Uh, uh, with, oh, love. Yeah, love that movie. Um, good return for Selma Blair, that one too. So I love to see that yes. working relationship continue. Um, but this was his first movie, and he pretty much knew, like, I have to go really, really hard on this because if I don't, I'm never going to get to make a movie again. And we're just so blessed that the movie he gave us was Cruel Intentions. And he did insert the comedy moments for levity mm-hmm. because he was like, there's so much and this is so intense that without it, it's just going to be a drag. Mm-hmm. And I think what ended up happening is whether intentional or not, it did add that level of camp because already you're dealing with people who don't really talk like humans. No. Like they're rich teens. So they're in this like other world that is kind of unrecognizable for so many people, which is why I think all of us just buy in of like, of course this is how it works. Cause we have no frame of <laughs> this reference. Is what rich people are like, right? Nobody knows. Um, so he has these moments of comedy sprinkled in that end up being high camp. Like for example, I don't think he thought that it was going to be funny that when Annette comes out around the pool and Sebastian is just ass out. What um, a marvelous ass at that. Yeah. Right. Philippi. Congratulations on the butt. Like that's fantastic. I had the same thought. I was very <laughs> impressed. I, yes. I didn't remember. Yeah. He, mm. he, it's like, he's like a statue in that moment. Cause it's his, right? It's yes. Not, that is his. It's definitely yeah. his ass. Okay. It's, right, it's nice, his nice, best nice. feature. If I'm being honest with you. <laughs> I agree. It's a, it's a pretty good one. And also something very important to keep in mind is that Ryan Philippi and Reese Witherspoon were together at this time. Part of how Reese got the job was that she was dating Ryan Philippi. That wasn't the only reason, obviously, but they were like, well, she's this wonderful actress. Election hadn't come out yet. They knew she was about to be a star. They're like, we got to get her. She'll be great. So a lot of the scenes between the two of them, the reason that they feel so wonderful is because that's natural chemistry. Mm -hmm. Reese Witherspoon and Ryan Philippi would get married the same year this movie came out, and she would give birth to their daughter, Ava, the same year as well. So... They were young. They were very young. They got married at, I think, Reese was 25 and he was 27. And she had both of her kids by 27. Um, Mm -hmm. So, like, they were very, very young. But in the moment where they're fighting with each other, when she slaps him, that's not in the script. She was just running off of, you know, if this person who is the love of my life really talked to me like this, this is how I would respond. And I guess when he leaves that, like, leaves frame, Ryan Phillippe left frame and threw up because (gasps) he was, like, so emotionally just torn up because... Can you imagine him having to say those horrible things to like this woman who re- like eventually becomes his wife? Like that's so awful. That's intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's some shit. So what is also very interesting is obviously 1999 is a heyday of teen cinema. Like a lot of these movies are in production. A lot of these actors all knew each other. They knew what each other was working on. And when word got out about Cruel Intentions, everybody wanted in on it. And Entertainment Weekly does these like oral histories of movies on anniversaries. And they did one for Cruel Intentions. And they talked with Sarah Michelle Gellar. And she goes, my reps thought that it was a terrible idea for me. They were like, you're Buffy. People have this great idea of you. Why shatter it? And I was like, that's the point. I was so determined to be a part of this that I would pester Neil, referring to Neil, I think Moritz, who was the producer, to find out what party Roger was going to. And then I would show up. And then I would find out when they were having meetings in his office. And then I would show up. So they were all trying to get in this movie Uh because of that script. 
I think it's because, like, there is a certain level of sameness you see with teen films around this time, and some are definitely taking bigger shots than others. Um, but even if you were to compare, like, two of the almost obvious ones from this year alone, you have 10 Things I Hate About You and He's All, and She's All That. Mm-hmm. So, like, those movies are remarkably similar, and there's a lot of very, um, very samey themes across all these various films. This one does not have that. Yeah. It is taking big, big swings that are not like anything else at the time. <laughs> yeah. It's got the heightened heightened teen dialogue that I think is like so fascinating to me. It is one of my favorite aspects of teen movies and television shows is that like the character or in this case most of the characters um well I guess only two of the characters have that that like you don't talk like a human being mm-hmm. or you talk like a French aristocrat or some mm-hmm. shit. And uh, I think it's it's so much fun in it. I'm I my most favorite teen archetype is what I call the well-read mean girl. And mm-hmm. I think uh, Catherine is a very, very, very like a prototype of that archetype. And uh, I I just it's the part of this movie I love so much. It's so deeply unrealistic and, and it, it almost has a magical realism quality because it's so deeply. And I mean, I guess teenagers talked like this in the past. I don't know. I just keep thinking of Oscar Wilde, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and definitely. And I think, if I may interject here really quick, I think it's a good moment to bring up this thing of, like, Oscar Wilde, right? Or mm-hmm. or these novels of the past often have outward, if not, like, subtle queer themes, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's something interesting about, like, this idea of, like, decadence and queerdom and how, like, we had Oscar Wilde or we had something like cruel intentions or something where like my example is I grew up uh, my mom was a makeup artist and so she had a lot of like fashion stuff around and and I would look at W magazine and especially at that time Dolce & Gabbana had a ton and this is like what 2000 and four maybe and Dolce & Gabbana had a ton of like very queer fashion photo shoots that were happening and you know back then I guess I was like I guess I'm a uh, a les I mean I thought I was bisexual but you know I I, um, thought I don't know I thought like um, because I guess like again the only representation that I had as like being a lesbian at that time, um, I guess I should say I identify as non-binary. Um, at that time, I was thinking I was going to be a lesbian because there weren't uh, tons of categories. And so I was like, I don't really feel like Ellen, one of my singular representations, is like at all who I'm going to be. Or I, I just didn't feel connected to that at all. But I felt more connected to like art and like the aesthetics of of these fashion magazines which was so weird and so confusing and again like this like elite version of something I don't know I've just been thinking that there are a lot of these examples that come from do you you guys know what I'm saying no you're yeah you're absolutely right all right because the thing that I always go back to is a lot of people love to shit on lesbian vampire movies of the 1970s uh, because it sort of solidifies this idea of the predatory lesbian because they are literal Mm -hmm. predators because they're vampires but lesbian vampire movies are also these worlds of excess where these women's have these women have these glorious castles and these beautiful garments and tons of jewelry and perfect hair and perfect makeup and they don't have to answer to anybody and they are just living in luxury and excess Mm -hmm. and it's like why is that a bad thing that's incredible what a dream that would be to just be able to be like 
surrounded by hot women and wear beautiful <laughs> garments all the time and no one can say shit to you because otherwise you will literally kill them. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Um, so there is like this, this like idealized almost dream that you can have as a young queer person trying to figure yourself out because especially when the news and likely your parents or your church and your school are telling you don't be gay because you're going to burn in hell and your life's going to be awful to be able to see something like a lesbian vampire film or a Dolce and Gabbana ad or cruel intentions where that queerness is luxurious and it is beautiful and it is exciting like there's something appealing to that Mm -hmm. I I think of it kind of as um, for for me since we're all we're all dropping our little things. I was obsessed with early seventies glam rock, which people always mm-hmm. are like, "Oh well, David Bowie, he's so fashionable." And I was like, "Oh," but during that time, it was a little more wild and in space alien. Like, you want to see what like real seventies glam rock is? You look up what Slade and Sweet looked like because those outfits are not good, but in mm-hmm. the best way imaginable. Um, I think of it kind of as like emotional fetishization of a concept, mm-hmm. where like. You develop a fetish or, like, a a misplaced attraction to something, like, sexually as, like, oh, I saw a woman in leather pants and I happened to find her attractive. And the leather pants were, like, hugging her in a way that, like, I got to see a whole lot of her body I'd never seen before. So then you develop this interest in the leather pants because you think that's the thing you're interested in. But I think as queerness, you develop this thing of, like, okay, cool. Well, I like 70s glam rock because they're wearing makeup and defying gender norms and they can wear whatever they want despite all these people, I think, being completely straight. I think every single one of the big glam rock people aside from Mark Boland, arguably, and David Bowie were all very hetero. So it gets into this thing where you can pick out the thing that resonates with you, even if it doesn't make sense, especially when there's a void of what you're looking for. You, you, You grab onto that thing that is like so so interesting and so fascinating. Um, I, I've brought him up, I think, for several episodes in a row now, but, like, the singer Tiny Tim, who is just <laughs> his own mixed bag of complicated things, but I'm reading his autobiography right now, and I remember hearing him sing in the very first episode of SpongeBob, which I believe is the same year as this, so I would have been nine years old watching SpongeBob instead of Cruel Intentions, because that <laughs> is that tracks a lot more. But you're hearing a man with a ukulele sing in this, like, shrill high-pitched falsetto going, that is a man singing like that. What the fuck? That's a Mm -hmm. thing you can do? And then you fixate on it because you're like, I didn't know that men could sing like that. I didn't know they could sound like that because he's not like Robert Plant where it's like hairy chest and super macho. Yeah, he's not wailing. He's fluttering. He's exactly. It's Mm -hmm. effeminate. There is this this delicateness to to masculinity in that voice. And then there you develop this fixation on it that is you then have to unpack and – I think that that's what you get with, like, the things we gravitate towards in our youth as far as, like, finding queer representation when there wasn't any. And I think, too, like, if you think of Oscar Wilde or anything like that, because that was also something I was reading in high school that was kind of helping me, which, again, elite queerness. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, where else, right, can these stories be told except in, like, havens of safety that are provided by having a lot of money or being an actually straight glam rocker, right? Mm -hmm. There's, like, you get to do these things and be safe. This is such a nerdy thing, but I think of even, like, Sappho, the poet, right? The Greek Mm -hmm. uh, famous, like, lesbian poet, whatever, from archaic Greece and the reason that she was able to write these queer poems was specifically because she was so rich and Mm -hmm. otherwise like women couldn't speak 
then, really. They couldn't leave the house, you know, but but because Sappho had a privileged place, she was able to not only explore these things, but speak of them. Right. And you kind of mentioned that before. So I think that that also has and like the safety of a fashion magazine. It's Mm -hmm. it's and being a model in a fashion magazine and not actually I mean, of course, we don't know, but at least at that time, not being out as a queer person, these none of these models were. So there was, again, this haven of safety to kind of act out these 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 attention at the time, very attention grabbing scenes of of like bisexuality and uh God, things were so different back then. <laughs> it was so different. <laughs> and I think something really interesting that we can draw to within Cruel Intentions is that we have two different forms of homosexuality presented in this movie because mm-hmm. we have, oh, bleach blonde Joshua Jackson. I don't know why between this and Urban Legend, they were like, what if you just were bleach blonde? Um, I liked it. <laughs> it's such a weird look on him because his eyebrows are so thick and dark. It's just such a weird it's look. It's okay. I love Everclear. <laughs> Um, but you, you guys, have... really quick, he went to my middle school. I was really before I was there, Aww. but he went to my middle school <laughs> anyway. Yes. Look at you, fancy like <laughs> one degree it. of separation. Mm-hmm. Um, but Joshua Jackson's character Blaine is a wealthy gay boy at this school. He's also like the resident weed dealer. But it's so funny looking at him in a sweater vest, like measuring out <laughs> weed. Like that is hilarious to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has been sleeping with Greg, who is on like a football team. He's very jockey. Um, and obviously Greg is not out. And there's this aspect of like humiliation with that. Like Sebastian is trying to get information because he thinks that Greg badmouthed him to Annette. So he's like, oh, I'm going to set this up for you. I'm going to like bamboozle you, take a picture, get proof that you're gay. I'm going to out you. And he uses that information as blackmail. Mm -hmm. And like, obviously, that's super horrifically problematic. But like, it was the 90s. And like, this is unfortunately a very common thing. And it was not safe to be out. It was really bad. So we have that aspect of queerness where Joshua Jackson is very okay with it. And he doesn't give a shit, probably because mm-hmm. he has a bajillion dollars and mm-hmm. is not trying to be a professional athlete mm-hmm. where so that, you know, the, the the relationship is different. But then we have Cecile and Catherine in Central Park just making out in the middle of the day, no fucks given. Mm-hmm. And that is a semblance of power. Like they're able to do that because they are wealthy, number one. Uh, They are women, number two. So there is an Mm -hmm. aspect of fetishization and being able to cater to the male gaze Mm -hmm. that makes them doing that in Central Park acceptable, whereas Greg is very Mm -hmm. much in the closet and is terrified of that getting out. And that's such an interesting thing that is really not explored a lot, especially not within the same movie. No, but I think something that's worth bringing up when you have this conversation about the two aspects of queerness and how it's shown is... They're all, this is the 90s. This is a decade of irony where, like, Sarah Michelle Geller's character of Catherine isn't actually trying to have sex with Cecile. There's this thing of being like, mm-hmm. well, I'm just teaching you how to do this because there, there's an end game to this. There's a ploy to it. But, like, I'm not actually into this. And you're not actually into this. Like, we like men. So, like, it's fine. But there's also this intense element of, like, shame with men. Like, you are shaming mm-hmm. men repeatedly for being like, oh, you're a football player and you like men? That's that's gay. Like, you can't you can't yeah. be into that and we must shame you for being gay. Oh, hey, Sebastian, you're in love with a girl? <laughs> Fuck you, buddy. Like, I'm going to shame you for being in mm-hmm. love. Like, there's so much intense complications with how men are showing emotion in this movie. And it doesn't it's not present with women. Yeah. I think that's yeah. a really a really good point to make. Well, what do we have here? 
Oh, look, Belmont. Okay. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. <laughs> I was just really drunk and blah, 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 blah. Please don't tell anyone. This could ruin my whole career, man. Your career? Greg, what about your family? I mean, can you imagine the humiliation your father's going to feel when he finds out his pride and joy is a fudge packer? Something that I wanted to to bring up in this Entertainment Weekly interview is they they asked the characters about all of their queerness, and they have such a lovely attitude about all of it. Aww. So Joshua Jackson says, the vibe on set was playful, and that was nice because my first day is doing the scene where I'm giving a blowjob. Um, so I was diving into the deep end, but I was more concerned with making my character real. You didn't see a lot of gay characters, period, but especially gay characters that were not caricatures. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make sure that even with the dialogue that was so beautifully over the top that he still felt like a person. And I think that's really evident in his performance. It's a great performance. I mean, it's small. It's a small part mm -hmm. in it, but it's like it, he he shines. I yeah, it's impactful. Him. And, and it's not caricature-y, and it's like a really weird relationship this movie has to homophobia, right? Because yeah. it's like Sebastian doesn't, it's like Sebastian's best friend, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not that Sebastian himself is shaming. It's like, I know you will be shamed, yes. so I can blackmail you. Yes. And it's not good, but it's interesting. Yes. That, that's society being homophobic, not specifically yes. Sebastian. Yes. Right. He, he, is, right. he is merely being a vessel of this feeling. Yes. Yes. So then Ryan Phillippe also says, I felt very okay with showing my butt because everybody has a butt and it's really not that graphic. <laughs> but so many guys on Twitter have told me that that's the moment they knew they were gay. Oh and there God. have been guys that are like, <laughs> there are also guys that have been like, I behaved like Sebastian to get laid, which I never did. Um, and then my personal favorite, because it's just so beautiful. Selma Blair says... <sighs> I'd never kissed a girl before, and I remember I was like, what if I'm a really horrible kisser? And then my mother, after seeing it for the first time, told me, honestly, Salma, did you have to use so much tongue? That poor Sarah. She looks so delicate, and then you just have that Goliath in her mouth. <laughs> oh, my God. Because that is something that I distinctly remember as a young child watching is that Selma Blair is the one who's supposed to be being taught how to mm -hmm. kiss. And she is the dominant force in that kiss. And of course, when Sarah Michelle Gellar pulls away because it's nothing to her, like it really yeah. doesn't mean mm -hmm. anything. She is just in ecstasy and has like the, that's really cool or whatever. She's she like says air like. kissing still. Yes. Like, wants the kiss to continue. It's so cute. Air. But I remember watching that and being like, huh, I guess, I guess that's a normal thing for someone to feel. Huh. Cool. Yeah, it's actually kind of nice because it's like, it's not, I don't know. It shows that, that she can just be like a little queer. Like it's not that big of a deal. She can like feel something. Yeah. while kissing this woman but it, it doesn't like mean she doesn't have some sort of like huge like oh my god am i gay moment she just sort mm -hmm. of it just it just is a kiss i don't know it's interesting kissing's nice kissing's it is. nice yeah. it's nice and something else i think is like exceptionally wonderful to bring up is that we've been talking a lot about how, like, it was a different time. It was a different time. And Roger Crumble even says, I got to revisit the movie a few years ago when we put up the musical, because stick a pin in that. And I was like, whoa, I don't know if we should do this with some of these things. I was like, oh, my God. It was another time, you know. Not that that's an excuse. And I love that even the guy who wrote this movie revisited his movie and was like, whoa, shit. Okay. Yikes. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. So even Ryan Phillippe says, at that age, it didn't feel as lascivious, and I'm not sure that I would have seen it the same way that you would see it in retrospect. And Sarah Michelle Gellar goes, what they're doing to her is horrible, and we could never make that scene today. Let's put it that way. And Salma Blair goes, yeah, but Cecile enjoyed almost every moment of it. She's so odd. She wasn't a shrinking violet, though, either. She wasn't upset. She was almost delusional for the better. (laughs) Which I also certainly was. (laughs) Which I also think is a good point, because Harmony, you had some issues with Salma Blair's character the entire movie. It feels... Too weird. First of all, Selma Blair is the oldest one in the four main characters of the like, cast. Of actor, like real life, yes, she's yes, the oldest. She's like 26 or something at the time yes. of filming. And the granted, they're all in their like mid-20s, so I don't believe of any of them as high schoolers, but let's set that aside. I've known Selma Blair as being like a badass her whole career. Uh-huh. And to have her playing what feels like Jennifer Garner in 13 going on 30 for most of this movie feels weird. <laughs> I, it's it's so weird. And then also there's this collision of like, she's the one sticking her tongue more into Catherine's mouth. She's the one who's telling Sebastian, I like it when I'm on top. Like she's being so much more forward. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's an element of Selma Blair. But also everything about her reads like so much younger and it clashes with who I know Selma Blair as in retrospect and also just what she looks like. Mm-hmm. I mean, she does wear like coral and everyone else is dressed like they're one of the vampires in Blade. Yes. Yes. All black. Yes. All black, everything. Like, and oh my God, Ryan Phillippe with that long ass coat and those sunglasses. Oh. Like, it just makes me think of that line of Grandma's Boy of like, how much do clothes cost in the Matrix? Because like, that's... <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was 1999, though. Like, that was a thing that uh-huh. we were doing, this, like, weird cyber goth sort of thing. I love a lot Vampire of, lot of questionable, A lot of questionable sunglasses. Uh-huh. Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of, like, weird little sunglasses that were red. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because why not? <laughs> yes. Yep. It was the future, baby. <laughs> yeah, sure was. Y2K who? <laughs> oh, my gosh. But no, I just, I think that all of the characters, like, at least for who I know them all, Reese Witherspoon makes sense. Um, Ryan Phillippe, I'm not really familiar with. But, like, I I find a hard time with this movie in terms of being, like, a sexy movie for me as a 30-year-old knowing who these people are. That's fair. Because (laughs) I'm I'm like, I don't know, Sarah Michelle Gellar doesn't scream sexy. Like, there's nothing against, like, her aura in this movie or her aesthetically. It's just sexy is not the word I go to. It's, like, not even, like, the 20th word I go to if I were to describe her. Reese Witherspoon's not sexy. She's cute. Selma Blair, I think of as a badass. So then you have all these weird sex things that aren't colliding. And the way I kind of pitched this when I was saying, like, is this movie a comedy is like when I had to suffer through watching The Dark Knight Rises. And I'm like, oh, this movie's bad. But if you watch it as a comedy, it's phenomenal. And it's one of my favorite Batman movies. <laughs> watching this, like, these characters be sexy, but it fit, it feels so out of place for them. And it's not a, like a, a, any kind of statement on them as actors. It makes it way funnier to me. And then that confuses me more because the scenes are so serious. You're watching it like in a meta. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. I'm using so much out of character knowledge as I'm like orchestrating like my own thoughts while watching along with it. It's so weird. <laughs> I mean, I that kind of makes sense, though, because 
like we said at the top, the cast in this movie is kind of unbelievable. Like everybody yeah. is doing great work. I know you're not as familiar with Ryan Phillippe, but Ryan Phillippe is also the person who delivers my favorite, like, why is that a line line in uh, the way the gun where he says, shut that cunt's mouth up before I come over there and fuck start her head. Who wrote that? Like, why is that a line? <laughs> but he delivers it with such authority. And you're like, only Ryan Phillippe can make that line work. Yeah. Um, so seeing him in this movie is really funny and like funny to me, but I also like kind of buy into it. But at the same time, as an adult, I do watch this movie more from like the camp factor. Mm-hmm. Like as a child, this movie was very much eye opening for me because we are only three years away from tattoos, all the things she said, which oh, so ruined my life. Um, <laughs> oh. So before we got there, all I had was Sarah Michelle Gellar and Selma Blair. And then, thankfully, the internet. Um, See, I think that that's the difference between getting to watch it in the moment versus me now watching yeah. it extremely retrospectively. Yeah. Personally, I think the sexiest person in this cast, if I were to describe someone as sexy, is the sexiest who in Whoville, Christine, Christine Baranski. The, racist the problem is mom. she's a racist in this one. <laughs> yeah. And like the thing, too, is like in – watching this movie in like 1999 like hearing her say that stuff is like oh my god in 2022 hearing it like your oh, instinct that's how rich people talk yeah your instinct is to kind of laugh because it feels like a weird commentary on like rich waspy white people mm-hmm. and just you know making fun of them it's so weird how differently this movie hits years later and at different age groups mm-hmm. now you are never to set foot in this house again And you are never, and I mean never, to see my daughter again. Is that understood? First of all, I never touched your daughter. And second, I would like to think that in these times, someone of your stature could look beyond racial lines. Oh, don't give me any of that racist crap. My husband and I gave money to Colin Powell. I wanted to just talk a little bit about, like, the dangerous liaison kind of connection, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so go for that. Literally, I, I have very little information because I was like, should I read this novel? And then I was like, I don't really read like old novels. <laughs> I just want to watch <laughs> teen dramas. So, um, but I just, this is pulled straight from Wikipedia, but I think it's really f- funny because it describes the exact plot of this movie. Two narcissistic rivals and ex-lovers who use seduction as a weapon to socially control and exploit others, all while enjoying their cruel games and boasting about their talent for manipulation. It has been seen as depicting the corruption and depravity of the French nobility shortly before the French Revolution. The book has been described as merely a story about two amoral people. So pretty, uh, pretty good uh, adaption, I'd say. I think so, too. And I think that if we're going to explore those sort of characters, teenagers work really well for it because it also kind of like obviously the stakes are high. Sebastian fucking dies like Mm -hmm. the stakes exist. But also the the last scene when Catherine is outed as being the manipulative monster that we know her to be. That is the most devastating thing that can happen to like the queen bee is your reputation being ruined. They talk about reputation so mm-hmm. much in this movie. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if this movie were to have been made with adults, which it was like, I think Meryl Streep's in the movie of dangerously, Ozean, yeah. dangerous liaisons. The reputation aspect of it is so like a non relatable aspect for so many people. 
Whereas even though this movie is not relatable due to the wealth, reputation as a teenager is everything. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what economic class you come from. That is a thing that all teenagers can relate to. And I think it was really, really smart of putting it in a high school. Mm -hmm. And even though it doesn't feel like a high school, like this is a high school movie that never steps foot in a classroom. And that's really interesting and doesn't happen very often. It's usually like, spring break adventures or yeah. you know whatever if it's not going to take place in the actual school whereas this is like we have dorms because school hasn't started yet we're on the grounds we are sort of trapped in this bubble world but because class is not in session the rules are up to us at this point mm-hmm. and that makes it a really ripe location to redo this sort of this story and you know it's 99 and for whatever reason, there was that huge boom of teen interpretations of classic literature. And it's just weird as hell that this is the one that they went with. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. And just uh, if we were to see what happens to Catherine in the book after her reputation is ruined, Wikipedia says that she <laughs> flees to the countryside after she contracts smallpox. Her f- her face is left permanently scarred and she is rendered blind in one eye so she loses her greatest asset her beauty well then yeah yikes this is like how napoleon gets cast away and dies (laughs) (laughs) no but 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 speaking of like the, the the reputation of this that makes so much more sense because like how do you hurt a rich person when they can buy that when they can buy anything and own anything Oh yeah, your reputation's the only thing you've got that matters, and that's like elevated when you're essentially like the valedictorian goody goody of your school. Like, hey, everyone finds out that it's the exact opposite. You're ruined. You've yeah. been. Everyone feels cheated and lied to, and you have people like looking at her as she comes out of the church in this funeral, and they're like shaking their head in slow mo, and while single tears fall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so dramatic and it's beautiful. So, it's so like, I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> but it's from your peers. <laughs> and something also really like fun fact to note is Bittersweet Symphony is the perfect song for this movie to end on. Like mm-hmm. unbelievably perfect. So good. Getting the rights to that song was a tenth of this movie's budget. It cost them a wow. million dollars. Because that song samples the Rolling Stones. The thing um, is, it doesn't oh, even shit. sample. I think it stamp, samples an arrangement, a classical arrangement of a Rolling Stone song. And if I remember the story correctly, the Verve had asked and gotten approval. And then after it was a hit or as it was like climbing up the charts or something, the Stones manager went, uh, actually, we changed our mind. You never got it in writing. Uh, fuck Boo. you. We, we wrote it now. And that's why like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards have writing credits on that song. And they are the sole writing credits. Wow. Wow. That's... That's bizarre. It's real fucked up. Yeah. yeah that's gross. It's it's wild because, yeah, I guess he wrote into the script that that's what he wanted the last song to be. And they were like, bro, we can't have this song. It's a million dollars. And he's like, OK, well, then find something else. And then they couldn't. Like nothing else fit. So they're like, well, I guess we're about to pay a million dollars for one <laughs> song. Honestly, investment was wise because I agree that mm-hmm. moment is so good and it has to be that song it just does it you does. need you need the classical arrangement that makes it like feel rich and wealthy mm-hmm. and elite and then for it to and kick old in. Kind and of. old uh-huh. yes right? you yeah. need that and then for then it to hit with like that very 90s 
male singer to say it's bittersweet. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, chef's kiss. Yep. Perfect song. Perfect. See, what's really funny about this soundtrack is uh, one of the only things I knew about it going into it was like, oh, yeah, uh, I know people have always told me like the soundtrack's really good. And I like I remember Tori Amos is on it. And uh, like the band at Pulp that I really love, their song Like a Friend is on it. And I'm like really excited to like get there. And I'm watching this movie and then it ends and I'm like, those songs aren't in this movie. What? And I look nope. it up. I'm like, I was thinking of the soundtrack to Great Expectations. Oh, too bad. But you got <laughs> placebo. Come on. that It's true. Yeah. Oh. I was very happy about that. But then I was like, oh, yes, another classical adaptation in the 90s. <laughs> God, we just did all of that. Whenever people talk about like, oh, there's no original ideas today. I'm like, there have never been original ideas. No. What are you on? We've no. been doing this forever. No. Oh, God. But but okay. Uh, something that we haven't really addressed that I do think is fairly interesting is that most of our characters kind of end where they began more or less. Um, like maybe just an enhanced version or like their circumstances have forced like the circumstances around them to change, like in the way of Catherine, but she's still the same. Sebastian goes through like a massive character change over the course of this whole film. Mm-hmm. And it's like implied to be like two weeks or something, like an extremely yeah. short amount of time. And I, I don't, I, I, that ties into how bittersweet symphony works where it's like talking about you can change, you can't change, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't, I don't know. I don't, well, what does it say as like a teenager who is like pure id and fickle and decadence where everything is hyperbolic and it's the most intense feeling you've ever felt in your life? What does it say that like you meet a girl and I mean, it's Reese Witherspoon. So like, obviously that is the biggest thing imaginable, but what does it say about meeting the one person that's going to change your life forever and turn you from being like, essentially the worst person in New York, aside from maybe your stepsister, into a redeemable character at the end. Yeah, I don't know. Did you guys watch Love is Blind? (laughs) (laughs) I have watched some of Love is Blind. Okay, all right, all right, all right. I'm not going to go into it then. (laughs) There's just a character that that has a similar kind of redemption arc in that short amount of time, um, but then turns out to still have been an asshole. So the question is, if he hadn't died, would Sebastian still be a good guy? Or did he just die when he happened to, like, show his, like, humanity? Like, there's this great poem by, I think it's Maxine Cuman who, it's like, it's about Romeo and Juliet, but, like, 30 years later, like, if they hadn't died. And it's just this scene of, like, Juliet looking at Romeo, and he's got some egg, like, in his stubble. And it's just, like, this kind of, like, revolting moment where it's, like, these, you know, like, do, do these characters, like, does this, was this eternal love or was this just an infatuation that led to a death and is the change permanent? And if they had been together, would it just be some horrible relationship within six months? We just don't know. I think that leads to the power of the ending and kind of the teenage idealization that we have with our relationships, like your high school sweetheart, like, oh, my first love, the one that got away. I think these are these really lofty Mm -hmm concepts that we fixate on when we're teenagers and we don't think about 30 years from now because like I'll look back every once in a while and think of like a live journal that I wrote or an all poetry poem or something that I did when I was really younger and you would read the way that I talked about the people in my life as if like they were the the greatest thing that ever happened to me and like 
my love would have gone to the ends of the earth. And yeah, I look back at it now and I'm like, no, <laughs> like in the moment, absolutely. That's how I felt. Like mm-hmm. everything is so much heightened because this is, this is your, your current, this is your future. Like you can't fully look beyond where you're, where you are at that age. And I think mm-hmm. even as we get older, like I'm in my thirties and I think ahead about like being an adult and I'm like, yeah, I definitely don't have enough money saved to retire. So I know I'm going to be working forever, but that's kind of the end of it. Like that is the end of me thinking about like the future. Cause I can't comprehend it. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's because so many things can change in our lives that like you have no fucking clue. Like I got cancer at 23. I have literally no idea what the rest of my life is going <laughs> to have for me no because shit. that's kind of shit that I shouldn't have been thinking about until I was way older. And it's like, well, okay, like anything is possible at this point. So I can't even uh, attempt to predict like that can't happen. And like for me personally, do I think Sebastian was a changed man? No, no, I don't. (laughs) Do I think that it is a good thing that everyone in his life saw him show that sign of change and then he died and now they get to have like remember him that way and not as like the monster that he was? Yeah, I think that's a great thing for all involved. (laughs) Sure. I I mean, people glamorize everyone. Oh, yeah, the martyrdom post death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember I had to go to my brother's funeral after he got hit by that train. And everyone was talking about, I was like, oh my God, he was such a caring person. I was like, he liberally used like the N word and called me a faggot all the time. And also was like a very mean drunk who I like, he wasn't a good person, but like whatever makes you feel better about being here, I guess. So uh, I guess the irony is that no one gave a shit about Sebastian at his funeral. It was only when they went outside that it was like, oh yeah, cool. Uh, Catherine's trying to hijack this for herself. Let's make this all about her by shaming her now. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a shame movie. There's a lot of yeah. shame in this movie. Oh, what an intense feeling. Is there a more powerful teen feeling than shame? No, that's the driving force. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know. Was, was Sebastian changed? I don't know. He was the best version of himself at the time. I like to believe that he would have been a better version of himself. Yes. Maybe not like the best version that we see like when he died at his peak but i can't imagine he was going to go back to being the horrible person that he was at the beginning of the movie ruining his therapist's life oh i mean i think that he would have because what would have happened is annette would have been like mm-hmm. you know what i'm better than this and would have pieced out and done something better and been with somebody better and sebastian would have been like well time to fuck my sister finally bye yeah like yeah. he would have spiraled See, I guess I'm just being, I guess I'm just an optimistic person. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> you give far more grace for people than I do in instances like this. It's true. Well, I just, here, here's the thing. And I, I think this is what it boils down to is that you have the scene where it's like, it's like a, a person version of when someone's trying to scare a dog away in a movie where it's like, I hate you. Go on, get. And you like throw a rock. It's like, no, get away from me. Go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where he's like trying to yell at Reese Witherspoon. And at least in that moment, it's like, oh, no, he's capable of feelings. Like mm-hmm. he's crying and he's shaking. And it would have been so easy for him to just be like, peace, uh, I'm out. Uh, bye, I don't need to see you again. But like he's giving her this respect. So like he's capable of of it like he's unearthed a thing pandora doesn't go back in the box okay that's a good point that's fair he's gonna be like 10 percent better 
yeah. hey, that's an improvement. That is yeah. true. That is I'll still an improvement. You yeah. go from an 80 to a 90, that's a B to an A. So, like, exactly. that's true. Mm-hmm. I, doing some I good work hate there. that he needs, like, women who are strong and have no patience for his bullshit, like Reese Witherspoon, to have to force him to improve. Like, that's shitty mm-hmm. behavior. But also, this movie points out, like, how we don't let men have feelings in the 90s because yeah. we'll shame them for it. So mm-hmm. he's never really had to grapple with having emotions. So it's complicated in that sense. But yeah. I'm an optimist. <laughs> That's so nice. <laughs> um, I do want to go back uh, real quick to a point that you made earlier, Chelsea, about the well-read mean girl. Mm-hmm. Um, because we talk a lot about mean girls on the show because we get a lot of them Uh and I love that you described her as the well-read mean girl because I think that is definitely my favorite brand of mean girl because Mm -hmm. she's not a mean girl that screams in your face and she's also not a mean girl that Regina George is it where everything sounds like she's judging you like you can kind of hear the upward eyebrow in the voice Mm -hmm. Catherine will just like look you in your soul and be like yeah, and I'm going to ruin your life and it's going to feel really good. Yeah. And it just cuts so much deeper because there's there's power in the restraint. And Catherine is so restrained because when she finally like reveals to Sebastian that like the big bet was actually not about him and, and Annette. It was more about like she wanted to ruin his life because she thinks it's funny because mm-hmm. he's a toy. She doesn't have like a big supervillain monologue the way you would expect it. It is so casual. Even though she, she is in her big chair behind a desk like a supervillain. Yes. Everything about her, like you would expect this to be like Dr. Claw and Inspector Gadget. And instead, it's just her drinking wine. And it's like, you're a fool. I don't fuck losers. Sorry about it. And yeah. like, it is so calm. And that is terrifying like it's just so scary and I love it and I think it's because I wish when I when I'm mean and powerful I wish that I had that stillness and I don't I'm too emotional mm, mm -hmm. you're too much of a spicy Chicago Italian for that yeah it comes out real hard (laughs) it comes out very scary and threatening and I can't do that and I wish that I could it'd be so much better (laughs) there's that like really strange and kind of beautiful moment though that I noticed on this rewatch where it right after she like destroys Sebastian right that like the horrible scene where she's like you're saying she's like I you're just a toy to me as soon as Sebastian like walks out of the room and leaves it like stays on her face Mm -hmm. and her face is like does that very very classic Sarah Michelle Gellar like I'm gonna cry but I'm not like just Mm -hmm. in Buffy that was constant like wide-eyed like it's just so Sarah Michelle Gellar but yeah and and it led me to the question of like who is Catherine beyond this like evil cartoon because she obviously is like she's hurt herself in some way by hurting him and it's almost like she didn't want to do it it's a really weird kind of choice but it, it's really good because it really opened up the character in a way to me do you do you guys notice that moment mm-hmm. oh yeah definitely yeah what's up with that I the way that I've always read it is like Catherine is somebody who has convinced herself that she doesn't care like mm-hmm. but everything she does is because she does care like court not a good dude. The only time we see him, he is pass out drunk in his car while she's giving him head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, like, why why are you so hellbent on ruining his life for this revenge? He doesn't matter. Like, that guy sucks. But you yeah. care because you don't like that you were rejected. Like, it really did hurt your feelings. And rather than unpack the fact of, wow, this guy hurt my feelings, 
She's like, well, I'm going to use that energy to ruin someone's life because putting somebody down is going to make me feel better and make me feel more important. And she knows deep down that like she cares and this hurts. And mm-hmm. I like Catherine is fully aware of how evil she is. Like you have to when you're like she's not a villain in the sense of like, oh, all bad guys think they're doing the right thing. Catherine fully knows that everything she's doing is not the right thing. Mm -hmm. She explicitly knows that it's the wrong thing. And that's such an interesting take for me because I feel so frequently when we talk about like bullies and let's call it for what it like she's bullying people like that's what she's doing. We talk all the time about like, oh, bullies are actually like really hurt and like hurt inside and they're lashing out and they're doing whatever. And they might not even be like aware that that's what they're doing. I think they're aware that's what they're doing. Like I truly Mm -hmm. genuinely do. Like the girls that bullied me in junior high and high school fucking knew what they were doing because they've apologized to me in the years since of like, (laughs) hey, uh, remember when I did this to you? And it's like, how could I forget? Um, And they're like, yeah, that was really fucked up. And I'm really sorry. I was going through a lot and you didn't deserve that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, no, you knew you were being a bastard. (laughs) Like you knew. Um, It's just like you can't process. Like, I don't think that when you're that age, you know how to process both at the same time. Like you Mm -hmm. don't know how to process like what's going on with you and how it's making you feel. And also the side effects of what your response to those feelings may be doing to another person. Like you cannot give a shit about that side of it. You just know that you've got to do something with these feelings you have to make yourself feel better and anybody else's collateral damage. Yeah. um, I think that uh, this might be, I guess maybe me projecting a thing because I have a, I'm connecting two dots and I'll get into that in a sec. But I think that what's going on with Catherine is she has obsessions. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a song I like called You Will See Me by a uh, a British poet slash hip hop artist named Scroobius Pip, who might be a butthole in real life. I honestly don't know. He just seems to kind of give off that vibes. But the point of that song is that someone hurt this character. So he's like, I will do all of these things be better than you. I will have, I will fall in love. I will get married. I will achieve my goals easily. And then I will achieve yours casually. And then that obsession goes toxic because he says, I will lay waste by land, air and sea. I will wipe out everything on the earth because then you'll see me. And that's what this feels like. It's like court hurt me. So I will destroy everything around everyone so that you know what you fucking walked away from. Oof. Mm, I yeah. like that. That's good. That's good. Yeah, that's Catherine. <laughs> that's her. <laughs> that is absolutely her. And she she will do it. But, you know, she even doing that is not going to make the fact that Court scorned her mm-hmm. go away. No. And that is the most teenage part of it all is that we do all of these things when we're young. And honestly, plenty of people until they're old. <laughs> people now god everyone go to therapy for the love of god um i know the 90s we shun we shame people (laughs) for going to therapy (laughs) i know we we go to therapy and then we have to fuck tara reed to ruin their our therapist's lives i i understand Mm -hmm. (laughs) also this movie deals with like revenge porn like that's insane to me like i know Uh that there is a more appropriate word for that now um like non-consensual shared sexual assault materials i think is the the correct word it definitely Um, didn't have a term in 99 it did not have a term in 1999 but yeah he like leaks her nudes on the internet and that's 
I think the first time I've ever seen that happen in a movie. That's yeah. wild as hell. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think so frequently we do things because we're hurting in in a way and we, we feel like, I don't know, this is going to make me feel better. Like, I, I know so many friends who like get dumped and then they're like, I'm going to completely do a makeover on myself. I'm going to lose a bunch of weight. I'm going to like look really hot. And then they're going to know what they missed. And I'm like, but are you are you happy? Like, did did you losing that weight and dyeing your hair a different color? Did that suddenly make you not still feel heartbroken? It mm-hmm. didn't. Cool. Maybe that's the thing you should be working on. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. maybe. Just misdirecting your self-improvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because any change sure. is better than no change. Yeah. 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 What shall we toast to? To my triumph. It's not my choice to toast, but it's your call. To your triumph over Annette. (laughs) What's so funny? Silly rabbit. My triumph isn't over. It's over you. Come again? You were very much in love with her. And you're still in love with her. But it amused me to make you ashamed of it. You gave up on the first person you ever loved because I threatened your reputation. Don't you get it? You're just a toy, Sebastian. A little toy I like to play with. And now you've completely blown it with her. I think it's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Cheers. So I think the other thing we haven't talked about with Catherine is that there's that great little monologue she has in the beginning about how unfair it is that Sebastian can fuck whoever he wants and she can't. And she says something like, God forbid, I exude confidence and enjoy sex. Mm -hmm. And that's another interesting part of her character that's really complicated is like, the idea that she's not allowed to do these things and that she has to hide all of it, whereas it like bolsters Sebastian's reputation, right? Is like the more people he sleeps with, the better his reputation becomes in the eyes of the student body. Whereas Catherine is the complete opposite and she has to appear like the Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side all mm-hmm. the time. And uh, so is she a feminist icon? Yes or no? Um, maybe an older wave of feminism. <laughs> but, like, bringing that up, though, when I was saying, like, oh, this movie shames men, but it doesn't shame women. And I'm like, oh, no, I think it does shame women. It just isn't really present specifically in the film, but there's the threat of shame that yes, exists. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there is, because I guess, like, she's attempting, yeah, you're right. It, she's attempting to shame Cecile through making her into essentially a slut, right? It's like, mm-hmm. that's the goal of the movie. The whole, the entire movie is about shame. Yeah. For men, it's about their emotions and for women, it's about their sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they do that to Tara Reid. Like, yep. all of her secrets get out. Like, oh my God, she does have sex and does do coke. Oh, yeah. the scandal. Yeah. yeah, the scandal. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good point. And I think that it is so 
very 90s because that I mean and it's still we still even see it today like I hate the fact that we are still having the debate of like if a guy has a lot of sex then he's you know a player he's a like big guy on campus but if a girl does it she's a whore like why why is it still a talking point obviously Mm -hmm. the answer is the patriarchy we know this um but it's it's I I wish that we were further along (laughs) Than, mm-hmm. than we are. Um, but nope, still a bunch of white dudes with flannels giving their voices on podcasts about women and still using outdated metaphors about master keys and locks and just all that bullshit. Um, hate that that's still a thing, but it's still a thing. I don't know. In terms of Catherine being like a feminist icon, I think that there is something to be said about allowing a female character that has sexual autonomy to also be a huge fucking mess. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. in a weird way, there is something really refreshing about that. Like there's a reason that I love characters like Catherine and then uh, Courtney Shane in Jawbreaker, I think is the other mm-hmm. like real flip side to that coin. I love the fact that they are so imperfect because especially now we've gotten into this really weird trend of all of our characters. We don't want them to be Mary Sue's, but they've got to be these strong female characters. And like, we've lost the space of mess. They can't be mm-hmm. too flawed because then they're mm-hmm. hard to relate to. Right. And it's like somebody like Catherine, we can look at this character objectively and be like, yeah, she's doing a lot of really bad shit. Like she's not doing good things. But there's also a lot of anger within her at the way that the world exists systemically. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there's a lot of privilege that allows her to express that anger in ways that are really toxic mm-hmm. and really destructive to the mm-hmm. world around her. Like, had she been in different circumstances, these are not things she would have been able to do. She would have had to learn how to channel those emotions differently. And who knows how that would have manifested? Nobody, and nobody she would have know. had some grand plan, right? It wouldn't right. have been this, like, quiet, silent, insidious, like, complicated plan, because nobody's got time for that. Right. <laughs> It would have just been, you know, something simpler, I guess. A simpler confrontation. And then you also have to take into consideration, too, like, she and Sebastian were forced together kind of without their consent. Like, Mm -hmm. their parents got married, and now these two people that are, like, just oil and water, just terrible for each other, Mm -hmm. they have to share proximity they have to share reputation they have to know each other they have to interact with each other and it's bad like the two of them are in an abusive and toxic relationship but one that neither of them can actually leave from Mm -hmm. and so then like that's manifesting in these really awful ways and that's something to take into consideration like I read a lot of Am I the Asshole on Reddit because, I don't know, it makes me feel good. And the amount of times that I have read things about parents or step-parents talking about, like, oh, my stepson and my stepdaughter don't get along and they're constantly fighting and Am I the Asshole because, like, I favor one over the other or whatever. I don't understand, like, that should be part of the decision-making of getting married, of, like, if your kids fucking hate each other and, like, are destructive, don't get married. Like, your families should interact with each other more before you get married because, like, that's not good for them. Mm -hmm. And it's so clear that their parents are, like, 
rich assholes who did whatever they wanted and don't care about their kids. Oh, like, yeah, there's like parents. one mention of them. He's like, your alcoholic father was diddling the ma- like on the yeah. yacht or some shit. Yeah, it's very brief. Adults don't exist in this world, really, except for, I guess, Cecile's mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have a question now is that let's 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 use another example of like an erotic thriller of this era. Eyes wide shut. Oh, God. <laughs> so Fun. that is just like uh, uh, that is that is rich people doing salacious things behind the curtain because they're able to buy their way into a secret society. Mm-hmm. The Illuminati. Yes. The, sec- the sex. Yeah. The sex orgies of the Illuminati. Exactly. So they're only able to do that because they have money. Mm-hmm. Let's assume that these characters are the exact same characters and they're forced together, like specifically Catherine and Sebastian, but they don't have money. Mom and dad don't have money to travel the world and ignore them. Mm-hmm. They don't have all of their thi- means met, like overly met, dare I say, so that they have absolutely nothing to worry about other than their bored little games. Mm-hmm. Is that the root of why everything about them is broken? Mm. Ooh. Honestly, this is going to be a hot take. I'm going to say yes, it is the root of why they are the way that they are because they don't have to worry about having their needs met. If those two were in public school, the guidance counselor from Heather's would have scooped up Catherine a million Mm. years ago and Mm -hmm. been like, yeah, we're going to work on this. Something is very clearly broken here. Also, they probably, not saying that I advocate for bullying, but if they didn't have so much money, they probably would be getting bullied. Yeah, people would be calling them on their shit. And they're you're absolutely right. Ooh, you're making me rethink this movie in like a very weird way. Like Capitalism is the enemy. (laughs) Capitalism is the is the the true villain of cruel intentions is capitalism and wealth. They've had no consequences. (laughs) None. None. So they have no idea that like it's almost like nobody's told them that there are other people who Mm -hmm. are real. Right. It's just it's they are just seen as expendable figures in like this weird fucked up chess game. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. And the therapist says at the very beginning of the movie that like, hey, you were born into this rich family, but like you it's not your fault of the circumstances you were born into. Like the movie's aware of it. Yeah. 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 Mm hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that that's also really important, too, because we get in a lot of these discussions a lot with, like, white privilege and just privilege in general of this idea of, like, well, you know, I didn't choose these circumstances I was born into it. And it's like, well, yeah, but you continue to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that you interrogate, like, how you fit in this world and why you benefit from it and not abuse that. Mm-hmm. And the, no one has had that conversation with them, well, and they are absolutely abusing it. Here, here's the thing, though, is that... Most of the time I'll defend like, you know, a, a dumb rich character in like a teen movie because it's like, oh, no one's ever had this conversation. They straight up don't know what they don't know. And that's mm-hmm. that's reasonable. I can at least understand that even if I'm like frustrated with them. But no, someone is straight up telling Sebastian this and he's not listening because he's distracted with the game he's playing. Yeah, yeah that's a good well, point. Well, he's enjoying it. Like yes. you said, Catherine is like fully aware that she is a sinister being like that's her whole brand and so yeah it's it's just uh i think it does have to do with with being a consequenceless individual with all this time and all this boredom right that you have to create this drama for yourself mm-hmm. yeah you just need to feel something because you, you don't fucking feel something. You, you don't feel cold. You don't feel hungry. You don't <laughs> feel being bullied. The only thing you get is like shame. And it's almost like you're self shaming yourself because of your circumstances. So you need to do anything to feel powerful and feel something. Yep. Yep. Ah, <laughs> oh, how sad. 
right? <laughs> I'm not <laughs> trying to vic- make these characters be like, actually, they're victims, but I'm saying it's complicated. It's complicated. You don't and know th- what you don't know, but they knew. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's a really good point. I think that's why I think so many people have gravitated towards this movie, because whether we recognize it consciously or not, I think we know that there's something deeper here, mm-hmm. even though like there is a level of camp to this movie. But there's a lot of stuff going on, and because it's so complicated just in the story, like the the actual story beats are complicated. I think we also know that these characters are complicated. Mm -hmm. They're not stereotypes. They're not archetypal. And that is interesting, but they have like hints of it. So we kind of know, but at the same time we don't. And like, honestly, we could have an entire podcast dedicated just to analyzing Catherine. Like she's so rich for interpretation. Should we? Should we? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to just start an entire new podcast. Like, Let's welcome. quit our podcasts. Yeah. Cool, welcome to cool the Coke Rosary Hour. <laughs> cruel interpretations. <laughs> cruel interpretations. Done. Oh, it's perfect. Green lighting immediately. <laughs> um, so <laughs> to kind of wrap things up a little bit, Cruel Intentions is not uh, lightning in a bottle. Um, it has gone on to spawn two sequels. A jukebox musical that I've heard is actually phenomenal. Um, and they back and forth for a while, they've been trying to get a series made. Um, the last I checked, I know I had to write about it for work. Apparently, there is going to be a Cruel Intentions streaming series coming as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's coming back. Oh. Do you know um, anything about it? Do you know who's doing it? Anything? Like, is this gonna suck? <laughs> It feels like it's going to suck. There's always the looming threat of it sucking. Well, like like the show of uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer, another uh, Ryan Phillippe vehicle. You know, I was really disappointed with that. All right. So here's what I can tell you about the new series. And I wrote this in October. A lot of things could have changed since then. But this is at least the latest news update that I've received. So the new series is taking a different approach, focusing on the aftermath of a brutal hazing incident that threatens the entire Panhellenic system. The events force the relentless step-siblings to do anything they can to secure their reputations, even if that means seducing the daughter of the vice president of the United States. No casting or additional plot information has been released, but the new series comes from Phoebe Fisher and Sarah Goodman, who were behind the I Know You Did Last Summer series on Amazon. There it is. is. (laughs) Um, Neil Moritz, one of the producers of the movies, is also attached, along with Pau Vinchetti, the head of Tavellagevrant, television for Morris's company original film um it looks like this is going to be an amazon series nope it's an imdb tv series oh, no. with amazon studios also producing alongside so more than likely it'll end up on amazon as Man. well so bad sound enough- good <laughs> are you a bad enough dude to seduce the president's daughter um, uh, I don't know. You've never seen My Date with the President's Daughter, a it's movie true. that we will absolutely be doing on this show sometime. Oh, good. I'm excited. <laughs> so, Cruel Intentions lives. Um, well, okay. Oh. I will watch it. I mean, at least the first episode. Same. I will, too. <laughs> and w- I guess we're just going to have to see how things shape up. I'm open. <laughs> so, Chelsea, is there anything else that you would love to talk about with this movie. Well, I guess the only last thing, I mentioned that I had been watching Cruel Intentions 2, which is a prequel starring Amy Adams as Catherine. Um, <laughs> yes, yes it is. <laughs> it is softcore porn, I oh, would say. Um, okay. It's not, but it's it's more like that than like a movie. Like the mm-hmm. dialogue is 
very porny. Like, it's very ridiculous. And, like, the ending, like, the very, very quick synopsis is that, cat, like, Ryan Phillippe's character, I'm forgetting everybody, so, so many characters, um, <laughs> Sebastian's coming to Manchester prep, and he actually has a past as, like, a bad boy with no money. And then his dad marries, like, a, you know, Catherine's mom and he becomes rich and whatever and then he meets this girl who he again falls in love with or well before falls in love with which is kind of not good of the movie because it's like he's falling in love for the first time in the other movie it doesn't matter but <laughs> it turns out that the person that he's in love with quote unquote is working with Catherine behind his back to ruin him originally like before this other ruining happened but the last scene i kid you fucking not is that she's like do you believe in our love sebastian and he's like i believe in our love and she goes i don't (laughs) (laughs) and then out walks Catherine, amy adams and they immediately start kissing amy adams character and like the the girl that he's in love with so they're making out and then He's like watching this and he's just like suddenly it cha- something comes over him and he's watching them and they're like, you can join us if you want. And he goes, if you can't beat him. And then Catherine says, who says you can't beat him? <laughs> OK. And that's like the la- almost the last line of the movie. And then they just all start having like a threesome. Wow. Thank God yeah. for that. The, the lines <laughs> in this movie are like completely ridiculous it's hard to get through (laughs) but i thought i'd share that as sort of our last like i was like what like what 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 is this even trying to i don't know what's happening anyway yep yeah and all that it bore (laughs) so harmony oh god yes the time has come Let's hear it. Cruel Intentions is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you paying for their ticket so they can go on their own? Listen. (laughs) After last night, Uh and then waking up and rewatching the, like, last half of this movie to reprocess it because there's so much going on, I was fully prepared to come in here and be like, no dog <laughs> like may- maybe they can go on their own maybe as like a cheap like roast it kind of movie because it's some beautiful gay camp like maybe those things here's the thing i have reevaluated my feelings via our conversations we've had here today. Ooh. interesting that said it's still only going to be a maybe you know what? Maybe it's we'll not a no. But Maybe yeah, it's not a no. Exactly. And you know what? Even if it's like Sebastian being only 10% better, it's better than it was going to be. <laughs> so there we are. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's nice. <laughs> well, Chelsea, thank you so much for coming and chatting about horny teens with us. It, this has been an absolute delight. <laughs> Tell everyone about what you do with American Hysteria, where they can listen, and everything good you got cooking. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This was very fun. And as you know, I mean, we talk about teen cinema in our a private friendship all the time. So it's just <laughs> nice to be able to talk to you both uh, about it. And let's see, American Hysteria is the podcast that I do. It's a scripted series about moral panics, urban legends, conspiracy theories, and other forms of American fantastical thinking. And it's mostly a history show, kind of half comedy, half 
horror. And uh, <laughs> we, yeah, we can find us uh, on any podcasting, whatever. And uh, social media is at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. And that's me. Beautiful. Friends, you can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends Up Prom. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And humongous thank you, as always, to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what band did you pick to fit with Cruel Intentions this week? <laughs> I, I was trying real hard to find someone who would sound like they actually fit on this soundtrack, which is very all over the place. Um, the band that I've got for you this week is, I'm, I'm assuming it's pronounced Modotti. It might be pronounced Modotti. Because it's a M O D O T T I. They are a Los Angeles-based noise pop band. Um, I think it's Sick. like sounds more like a like shoegaze, um, very ambient in that way, but with like some pop melodies. Anyway, uh, they popped up on my radar a few weeks ago with a song they released called "Loser Smile." Um, mm. Like I love the double entendre there, like not in the sexy way, but just in like ah double meaning kind of way. Um, but they have other song. They have a few other songs out. Um, I am also a big fan of "Waiting for You" and "Glow in the Dark." I think they're good for like sad, sexy noise music. <laughs> and this movie is a lot of sad, sexy noise. Exactly, so that mm-hmm. fits perfectly. <laughs> well done. Thank you. <laughs> All right, friends, that takes us out. We will see you next time. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. I know it sounds really trite, but sometimes when I feel I can't go on, I turn to Jesus and he helps me through it. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.